Okay, Revelation chapter 7, we'll start in verse 9, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. So after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. So it was three weeks ago, because we had the fifth Sunday, that we looked at Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And in that passage... We looked at the 144,000 sealed of Israel. Now we also noted that in that passage that what we see here, these two visions in chapter 7 form an interlude, sort of a pause, an intermission between the 6th and the 7th seals, indicating that we saw last time that final judgment was being delayed so that the angel could seal God's elect. And this act of being sealed served three functions. First was identification. So when God seals us, when the angel seals us, he marks us as God. We are his. It also provides the function of authentication. We are assured of our salvation. And then finally, it, is, it serves the function of protection. We are preserved, firm in our faith through the end, that we are protected and shielded and guarded until the end when Christ returns. And then we also looked and saw that this ceiling isn't something visible, but something uh, most likely refers to the Holy Spirit. And then John also sees the number of those sealed, that the number is 144,000. And they are taken from every tribe of Israel. And we looked at three possible explanations for for this, the Jehovah's Witness version, the dispensational version, and the consensus, I put that in quotes, the consensus reformed view, that the 144,000, and this is my view and the view I tried to espouse last week or last time, the 144,000 represents the fullness of the people of God. It represents the true Israel. And we had arguments for that based on how the tribes were ordered based on some of the omissions, based on some of the additions to the tribes, and so on and so forth. Now as we head into Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, we need to initially consider two things. First, this finishes Revelation chapter 7, as you would expect, right? You know, when you get at the end of verse 17, the next verse is not verse 18, but it's chapter 8, verse 1. So we are finishing Revelation chapter 7 and this interlude between the 6th and the 7th seals. But secondly, and more importantly, this concludes the first cycle of visions within this period or within this section from Revelation 4 all the way to Revelation 22. If you remember, we talked about Revelation deals in cycles of visions. So this is the first cycle. It began in Revelation 4 when John is brought up into the throne room of heaven. And now as we get to the end of the seals, we're going to see the end of this first cycle. The second cycle will begin in Revelation chapter 8. 
And really that seventh seal sort of gets merged into the second cycle because there's really only one verse that deals with the second, the seventh seal. It's opened and then you hear the silence and then things start to take up again as you start to progress into the uh, trumpet judgments. But there are some other things to consider as well. Namely, that the visions of Revelation are two separate visions, right? You see this in verse 1 and in verse 9 where John says, After this I saw, after this I looked and beheld, things like that. You see these after these things. That's usually a transition mark that says, okay, I just finished seeing a vision. Now I'm about to see another vision. After these things that I just saw, I'm seeing something new now. This is typical vision language, but they're related because these two visions that we see in chapter seven, as we've been arguing, represent two perspectives on the same group of people. In other words, the 144,000 sealed of Israel are the great multitude before the throne in heaven. And we looked at this because we mentioned this idea last week or last time. I keep saying last week, last time of this idea of the church militant and the church triumphant. And I'm going to use that language a lot tonight. Church militant, church triumphant. I'll explain that in a moment. I think I explained it before, but I'll explain it a little more this time. But this idea of seeing the same group of people or the same thing from two perspectives is not unusual. We saw this in Revelation chapter 5 when John sees the vision of Jesus. He's How does John see Jesus at first? Do you remember? Give you a hint. Rawr. Okay. <laughs> a lion, right. And then after he sees the lion, what does he see? I'll give you another hint. <laughs> a lamb. Okay. All right. He sees Jesus both as a lion and then again as a lamb. Two very different animals, right? Lions and lamb. Lions usually eat lambs if they're in the same vicinity. Okay, two very different animals, yet both describing aspects of Jesus Christ. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the one way back in Genesis. The ladies know this because we looked at this Wednesday. He was the one prophesied about, predicted about when Jacob is giving the blessings to his children. And he talks to Judah. He says, you are a lion's cub and the ruler's scepter shall not pass from between your feet. But then he's also the lamb, right? John the Baptist says he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's both the conquering lion who conquered through being the lamb slain before time, before the foundation of the world. Now back to this idea of the church militant and church triumphant. Throughout the history of the church, theologians have come up with several different ways to describe the church. Now, I'll bring these up if these are familiar to you. Great. If not, I'll try to explain them. But these are all ways to describe the church. Okay, the group of people, you know, the kingdom of God, people of God, so on and so forth. The first one is visible, invisible. Have you heard of that one? The visible church, the invisible church. Okay, you can shake your heads. You can nod. You can say yes. Okay, or you can say no. Uh, The visible church is what we see here down on earth. Okay. It's made up of all people who identify with or are members of a local church or who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. As such, Jesus said it can be filled with wheats and tares, right? The visible church can be filled with true believers and false believers. Jesus said that, right? A man sows a field, uh, Matthew 13, and he plants wheat. And then when he's asleep, his enemy comes in and plants weeds throughout the field so that they both grow up together. And the idea is that you can't, with, unless you inspect them really closely, you can't tell them apart. And then his servants come up to the man and says, your enemy is coming, he's planted weeds in your field, shall we dig them up? And the man says, no, don't do that because you might dig up the wheat too. Wait until the harvest and then we'll separate them. The visible church can be filled with unbelievers. The invisible church, okay, doesn't mean like, you know, you can't see me, you know, what is, how is that? who's that wrestler John Cena does this, you can't see me. The invisible church is made up of all the elect, past, present, future. 
All the people who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, as Paul will say in Ephesians 1. That is the invisible church. The reason it's invisible is because I can't tell who is a member of the invisible church. I can look at you all. You're all members of the visible church. I can't tell if you are members of the invisible church because I cannot see into your hearts. I cannot see that your profession is a true profession. I believe it is because you give all the evidence and fruit thereof. But ultimately, the choice is not mine. I'm not privy to that information. The invisible church is not seen. You don't know who's in it. So invisible church, visible church. Another description is between the local church and the universal church. Have you heard of this one? Local church, universal church. We are a local church. Emmanuel Reformed Church is a local church. But we recognize that we are part of a larger entity known as the universal church. Not just within the RCUS, but also other faithful denominations and churches. So, you, you know, the church, is, again, this idea of the visible church can be kind of merged with the idea of the universal church. This would be the small C Catholic church that means universal, of, made up of all people that, again, profess faith in Christ. That is the universal church. You know, and again, Paul will say this in Ephesians 4 when he says we are united by one faith, one baptism, one confession, one Lord, one Savior, one Spirit, one God. That's the universal church versus the local church. We are, a, we are an entity of the local church. The RCUS will be an example of a universal church. And then you can, you can spread that beyond that, those boundaries as well. A third one is the church as institution and the church as organism. Okay, this comes out of more Dutch reform thinking. Uh, Abraham Kuyper was fond of this uh, designation. The church as institution and the church as organism. Now, the church as institution has a very specific calling and function. And that function and those calling is to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments, and to exercise discipline. That's what the institutional church does. Preaches the gospel, administers the sacraments, exercises discipline. Okay? To be, not to be confused with the state that has the power of the sword to execute civil judgment, to execute and enforce civil laws. The church has the function to work within the kingdom, to operate the use of the keys of the kingdom, to admit people in and to exclude people from communion within the church. So these are functions that the church does. So the church should not engage in, as an institution, should not engage in like greater social work, okay? Like promoting social justice in the true sense of the word, not the sense that is, you know, it's abused in, in our day and age. Or the, you know, like the whole idea. What, let me back that up. So back in the late 19th, early 20th century, the church got involved in something called the social gospel. Okay, so it, was, it got over-involved in feeding the hungry, clothing the poor and the naked, putting roofs over the head of the homeless, and all these good functions, okay, functions that show the love of Christ to people who are in need. But the problem was they got that confused with what the church ought to be doing, which is preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, and exercising church discipline. So all of these fall within the purview of the institution of church. Now the church's organism, this gives the idea of like a living creature, right? The church's organism, that's us. As we go out into the world, being salt and light to our neighbors in our daily lives. So as a, as a function of the organism, you know, as a function, function of the church as organism, it would be perfectly acceptable for a Christian, an individual Christian, to work, you know, say, building, you know, Habitat for Humanity, or going to a local food bank and feeding, uh, you know, hungry people or homeless people, or donating your time and your treasure and your talents to helping the least of these. That is a perfectly okay thing to do for the individual Christian, for the church as organism. That just doesn't fall under the church as institution. The church has a very specific calling as an institution to do three things, the marks of the church, 
gospel preaching, sacraments and being administered, and discipline being exercised. Finally, and the one that I wanted to get to, I just wanted to bring you those other things because this is how the church is viewed in theological circles. Finally, you get this idea of the church militant and the church triumphant. And really, it's, it's quite simple. The church militant is the church here on earth. Okay? Fighting within and without. Fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Engaging in spiritual warfare that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. Gird up your loins with the, God, you know, the belt of truth. You know, take up the shield of faith. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Take the sword of the spirit. You are the church militant. Think of that song, Onward Christian Soldiers Marching Into War. Okay, it doesn't mean we go on a holy war like you know Joshua led the Israelites to conquer the land of Canaan. This is a spiritual warfare, right? Paul says, our foes are not flesh and blood, but we you know, fight against principalities and authorities and all these, you know, it's a spiritual conquest. It's a spiritual battle. So we stand firm in the power of the Lord. We stand firm in his strength and we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The church triumphant is the church in heaven, celebrating its victory in Christ with the Lord, which is what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 7. So we see here the difference between the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant was, we saw last time in Revelation 7, 1 through 8. In fact, if you look at the way uh, the tribes are numbered, this looks very similar to what you would see in the book of Numbers when Israel is told to number the people and number the men of war to get ready for battle as you are about to now go into into Canaan to conquer it. And they'll say, okay, so many from the tribe of Reuben, so many from the tribe of Simeon, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's sort of you're taking your, you're marshalling your forces together. And this list here in verses 5 through 8 is very similar to that. As it's like you're numbering the, an enormous army here of true Israelites preparing for spiritual battle. And what we'll see in a moment here in our passage tonight is the church triumphant, standing before the throne in heaven praising God and receiving all of the benefits that they have with their victory in Christ. Their struggle is over, right? Their struggle is over and they worship before God and before the lamb. Okay. So now as we get into our passage, uh, looking at our first point there, who, who is this great multitude in verses nine through 12? Or who we're talking about the great multitude, I should say. So after seeing this great vision of the 144,000 who have been sealed, the battle lines of the church militant, the fullness of the true Israel, John here sees another vision in verse 9. After this, again, that language of visions and its transition, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So John here is given a vision or a picture of a vast multitude that no one could number. And it kind of reminds me, right, of the promises made to Abraham. When God told Abraham, you're going to have descendants, how many descendants did you say he was going to have? This numerous, yeah, if you could count the sand on the seashore, look up in the heavens, if you can count the stars, that will be your descendants. And here we see the, the ultimate fulfillment of this. A vast multitude of people who embrace the same faith as Abraham did when he believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. A vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, all peoples, all languages, here in heaven. Now again, I've been arguing that the 144,000 and the great multitude are one and the same group of people seen from two different vantage points. However, our dispensational brothers and sisters, and I'm very 
careful to emphasize they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same confession and the same Lord, right? But we have a different view on eschatology and a different view on the end times. And that's okay. That's okay, right? We can disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Our dispensational brothers and sisters see the 144,000 as a literal number of Jews. We looked at this a little bit last time. A literal number of Jewish people converted during a seven-year tribulation period at the end of the age. Likewise, when they get to this passage and they see this great multitude, they see this either as the raptured church or Gentile converts, the fruit of the witness of the 144,000. So again, kind of digging into trying to recall some of my dispensational past, the tribulation is a seven-year period. The church is raptured out of the world, and now you've got the seven-year period of time in which God brings judgment, and he sort of gets back onto his plan for Israel. And then the 144,000 are sort of like the first fruits of that as these Jewish witnesses now go throughout the world and preach the gospel, and many converts are brought to faith. So now you see this great multitude. It's either that raptured church that's before the tribulation. More than likely, though, they would probably go with the second one because later on it says these are taken out of the great tribulation. So these would be those who have, who have uh, converted based on the work of the 144,000. Now, my point, my view, of course, that I've been arguing is that I think it's best to see this as the church militant and the church triumphant. The 144,000, the church on earth, the great multitude in heaven, the church in heaven. Those who are suffering on earth have now been turned to victory and joy in heaven. In fact, these are the people that the four living creatures and the 24 elders sang about earlier. You might even see it on the same page. You might have to turn a page. But Revelation 5, verse 9. And we see that these angelic creatures, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, sing a song, a new song, in fact. There's your biblical support for singing a new song. <laughs> singing new songs in heaven, saying, Worthy are you. This is, they're singing to the Lamb now. All right. In chapter 4, they sang to the one who sat on the throne. Here they're singing to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's the same description of the people in Revelation 7, 9. People taken from every nation, language, tongue, or uh, tongue and language is the same thing. Uh, but people taken from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Now, I want to focus on two things of this great multitude. First, the vastness of the church. And secondly, the victory of the church. First, the vastness of the church. And again, we've seen this phrase over and over again, but the church triumphant is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How many are left out? Zero, right? Zero tongues, tribes, and nations are left out. All of them are included in this vast multitude before the throne. Now, I want to emphasize this because it can be tempting to think that Christianity is fading in our, in our day and age, or that it's shrinking, or that we are becoming more and more irrelevant. We can kind of feel like Elijah after the victory on Mount Carmel. You know how that story goes, right? Elijah has this, he, he's called forth, and he has this confrontation. He's God's champion, and he's going up against 400 priests of Baal, and they have this great confrontation on Mount Carmel. And the priests of Baal try to call Baal to answer them, and he doesn't answer because there's only one God, right? Baal is a false God. He's a, a, a non-existent God, and Elijah is mocking them, saying maybe he's you know, relieving himself, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's on vacation, you, know, you, you need to page him, or whatever. And then Elijah steps up, and he says, okay, douse the altar, douse the wood, douse the... 
you know, just flood the sacrifice. And then he calls on God and this great fire comes down and consumes everything. Great victory. Elijah probably thought, now, finally, the people of Israel will return to their God. They'll walk away from this apostasy they've, they've been going after. They'll reject Jezebel and Ahab and return to the Lord. And then what happens? How many people get converted after that great victory? No, no, no one, right? <laughs> In fact, Jezebel says, I'm going to get you, <laughs> Elijah. And Elijah's like, ugh. Okay, so he leaves, he flees, and he goes in in 1 Kings chapter 19, he goes and he hides in this cave, and he's sulking and he's depressed. I would be too, right? I mean, I, you know, I was used by, if I was used by God to work a great victory and have this great miracle and no one converted because of it, that would be depressing. (laughs) So he's there, he's sulking, and God then sends a whirlwind and he sends a fire and he sends all these things. And it says, all the time it says, and the Lord was not in that, and the Lord was not in that, and the Lord was not in that. And then finally, you get the still, small voice. And he's like, Elijah, what are you doing? He's like, no one is following me. I am alone and left in Israel. I am the only true believer. And what does God say to him? He says, you're not the only believer. (laughs) I've got 7,000 more people waiting who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, here's what I want you to do, Elijah. Get up, get to work. And Elijah's like, okay. You know, you're God, I'm not. And we can feel like that. Because we look at our country, right? We see Christianity is kind of fragmented. It's, you know, kind of waning here. Then you look at Europe, it's like practically on life support. Um, it may be flatlining for all we know. But there are places in this world where Christianity is thriving, you look at South America, you look at Africa, you look at Asia. Christianity is thriving because that's where all the persecution is, right? It's not here. <laughs> Satan doesn't have to work very hard in Europe. He could, he could kick his feet up in Europe. <laughs> They're practically all non-believers there. And then he, you know, here he doesn't need to work too hard. You know, but there he's got to work hard. He's got to persecute those Christians because Christianity is growing there. We are not alone. We are not alone. This is a vast multitude that no one can number. Secondly, the victory of the church. This vast multitude stands before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is a picture of victory. This is a picture of victory. These white robes harken back to earlier passages in Revelation where the overcomer, is said to be given a white robe to the one who overcomes. You will be given a white robe, you know, or to the people who are under the altar in the fifth seal who are crying out, vindicate us, O Lord. And the Lord comforts them. He goes to them. He says, just wait a little while longer. It's almost done. Just wait a little while longer. Here's a white robe. Just wait. You know, you're very comforting to these people who are suffering who want vindication for the fact that they, are, they have suffered for the cause of Christ. It's also symbolic of the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the victory that he won for us back on the cross. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But then we, hear, we see here that this vast multitude has palm branches in their hands. What are, what are the palm branches? What do you guys think the palm branches are for? Can you think of any other places prominent passages in scripture where palm branches were used? Right. Jesus' triumphal entry. There's also another one in, uh, this is for the celebration of the Feast of Booths, one of the three major feasts that the Jews are supposed to celebrate. Uh, uh, Leviticus 2340, uh, the people are commanded during the celebration, you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before your, the Lord your God seven days. So these, these pictures of celebration before the Lord. The Feast of Booths was how the Lord had, uh, to commemorate how the Lord had uh, protected and preserved Israel through their wilderness wanderings. And then, of course, you have the triumphal entry, uh, John 12, verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
So these palm branches are used in festal celebrations. So again, they are clothed in white robes, which indicates the victory that Christ won for them on the cross. And they're waving palm branches, which is, you know, I I guess the the closest equivalent will be sitting in Memorial Stadium in Lincoln with your big number one foam finger with a giant red N on it. Okay, Nebraska number one, that will be like waving the palm branches. When was the last time we were able to wave Nebraska's number one foam fingers? (laughs) Maybe we'll do that for baseball this year, right? So what is this vast multitude doing? What are they doing in the in the before the throne? What's that? Yeah, worshiping, right? They're worshiping. Verse 10. So they're there before the throne, before the throne, before the lamb, and they're crying out with a loud voice, "Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb." Again, this is the church triumphant crying out with a loud voice, celebrating salvation that has been won in Christ. And again, this is one of the basic truths of our faith, right? Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb, not to us. The church triumphant stands before the throne in heaven not because of their great faith, not because of their mighty works, but because of our great God. And our great Savior, Jesus Christ, he alone saves. Salvation is by his hand alone. But even more than that, the church isn't alone in praising God. In verses 11 and 12, we see the angelic host joining in. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So the whole heavenly retinue, right? All the angels before the throne, the four living creatures who are the cherubim, the 24 elders who are the angelic representatives of the people of God, they all join in this giant praise chorus and note their sevenfold blessing. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. A perfect chorus of praise to God and to the Lamb. Now it's interesting also to note seeing the heavenly host praise and worship God over our salvation. Because that's what they're doing, right? They're praising God because the church triumphant is here. The church triumphant is now in heaven before the throne, and now the angels are praising God for the salvation that comes to the people. But we see this in other places in Scripture, right? In Peter's first epistle, he talks about our great salvation, how our great salvation was revealed to the prophets of old, and then how those prophets searched diligently to see how and when these things would be fulfilled. And then Peter closes with this. He says in 1 Peter 1.12, these things that we are talking about, this great salvation, these are things into which angels long to look. The angels of God are like, God, what are you doing? This is great. This is amazing. You are working the salvation. This is wonderful. We want to watch. That's what they're doing. They want to look into these things. The angels of heaven are eagerly looking to see the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. And then in Luke 15, 10, those three parables that Jesus tells to the Pharisees, right? The the audience is the Pharisees because the Pharisees were grumbling. That's what they do. They're professional grumblers, okay? On On their car, they would say, hello, my name is Yasser Ben something or other. My occupation is Pharisee, but I'm also a professional grumbler. They, all they did was grumble at Jesus because Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. And then they grumble. It's like, don't you know who you're hanging out with? And then Jesus tells them three parables. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. But after the parable of the lost coin, we read in uh, Luke 15.10, Jesus says, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the heavenly host is just excited when they see one sinner repent. 
How do you think they're going to feel when they see the whole church triumphant standing before the throne of God, praising God? That's going to be one heck of a celebration, and I want to be there for it. Okay, point two. Verses 13 and 14. How? How is this great multitude before the throne of God? Well, they're brought out of the great tribulation. So after this opening scene of the church triumphant before the throne and the great scene of praise and worship as the multitude along with the heavenly host joined together in glorifying God, one of the 24 elders comes up to John and asks him a question. Who are these, verse 13, clothed in white robes and from where have they come? So really it's a question that has two parts. <laughs> Who are they and where, from where do they come? Now, again, we've been arguing that this great multitude is the 144,000 of verses 1 through 8. But John, as we'll see, isn't quite sure how to answer the angel, right? If an angel asks you a question to which you don't know the answer, how would you respond? I would respond like John. It's like, I don't know. You tell me. You're the angel. You're the one who's privy. You're the one who's here before God's throne. So that's what John says in verse 14. He says, sir, you know. And the angels, of course... The angel's like a good lawyer, right? What, what's the, the thing they say about lawyers? A lawyer, you should never ask a question to which you don't already know the answer, right? The angel knows the answer. He's not asking John because he wants information. He's asking John to see if John knows. This is like what God does, right? When God says to Cain, where are you, Cain? He's not looking for Cain. He's like, I know where you are, Cain. You don't need to. It's like, I'm hiding behind the bush. And it's like, no, okay, no. No, I, I know that. I know that. Or I mean Adam, not Cain. But anyway, you know what I mean. It's like, uh, it's like, yeah, I know where you are. Why are you hiding? That's more of the point. And so the angel says to John, these, this great multitude, are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So again, John's response is like, I have in the foggiest who these people are. And then the angel says, well, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, I want to stop for a moment here and consider what is the great tribulation. Again, uh, as we said earlier, our dispensational brothers and sisters argue that the great tribulation is a future period of tribulation far worse than any that has ever been experienced. And there are several passages you can point to, but typically they go to Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse in verse 21, where they see Jesus says, for then, this is when the abomination of desolation is revealed, and uh, you know, the, there's this great apostasy, then he says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Paul kind of alludes to it a little bit in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, the reason why the dispensationalists believe that this is a specific period of time in the future is because you've got that definite article there, right? The word the, the great tribulation. They emphasize the. So every time the dispensationalist says the great tribulation, imagine the word the being in all capitals. Okay, the great, great tribulation. Now, again, what do we say about this? Well, if you remember all the way back at the beginning, when I, we started to introduce the book of Revelation, we said that any interpretation of Revelation that would not make sense to John's original first century audience ought to be suspect. Right? If John, John's writing to a group of first century churches, what good is it to tell them that there's going to be a group of people in the far distant future that are going to be standing before the throne of God coming out of the great tribulation? They're going to be like, all right, I don't know what that does for me in the here and now. You know, we're suffering persecution here in Sardis. I'm not sure what this, you know, how far in the future, John? It's like, I don't know. It's going to be the far future. All right, well, thanks. You know, you got something for me today? <laughs> Um, because John is being given a series of visions to bring comfort to Christians facing persecution now. And by now, I mean then. <laughs> and also now, but also then. Again, what comfort is to know that in the distant future, a group of Christians will stand triumph- 
before God. That's why I believe it's best to see the Great Tribulation as representing, again, the entire church age. This entire period between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension and the return of Christ is one of opposition, persecution, and tribulation. I've used this illustration before, but the victory on the cross is D-Day, right? When D-Day came and the, and the allies, and were, actually today is D-Day Day, so, you know, happy D-Day Day. But, you know, when they stormed Normandy Beach and they broke the lines of Nazi Germany there in, in northern France, the war was effectively over. But then they fought for another year until VE Day in May of 1945. That's where we're in. We're in that period between D-Day and VE Day. We're fighting. The church militant, we're fighting, right? It's one whole period of opposition, persecution, tribulation. Now, I believe that this general tribulation that we see will worsen as the day of the Lord approaches. And that's what we see, again, going back to Jesus and his Olivet Discourse. But this one whole, this is one whole period of tribulation. Jesus said, you know, if you are in the world, you will face troubles. But take heart, I have overcome the world. D-Day, I have, I have achieved the victory. And that victory will be yours eventually in fullness. And again, we also need to remember that we're still in this interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals. And again, if you remember the fifth seal we talked about a little bit uh, earlier, represents all of the martyrs of the church age crying out to the Lord for vindication. And they were each given a white robe and told to wait a little longer. And then the sixth seal ends with the question, who is able to stand on the day of the Lord? And the answer is that those who have been sealed, the church militant is able to stand because they've been sealed by God. And the evidence that they are able to stand is seen here as the church triumphant stands victorious before God and before the Lamb. Now, finally, notice that the only way this multitude can stand before God is because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what does this speak of to you? What does this sound like to you? It's a, it's a technical word, starts with the letter J and ends with the word, ends with the cation at the end. <laughs> Justification, yeah. The blood of Christ shed for us cleanses us from our sins. And again, as we said earlier, this is the Lord's doing alone. The blood cleanses us. All right, we just take our robes and wash them in the blood of the Lamb. And also, as Paul says in Romans 8.30, he says, those whom he justified, he also glorified, right? Of course, before that, it says those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. So you can really shorten that whole two-verse section. Those whom, those whom he foreknew, he glorified, because everything along the way goes. There's no dropping out. So again, if you want comfort in your Christian life, what brings better comfort than to know that your faith in Christ will be preserved? Right? Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will see it to the end, to the completion on the day of Christ. No one will snatch you out of the Father's hand. Again, Paul, Romans 8, right? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. He goes through a whole list of things. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. We'll see this in John 10. My Father holds you in His hand. No one can snatch you out. Your own failures will not disqualify you. Your salvation is secure. For those who persevere will be glorified. And that's what we see here. So now moving on to verses 15 through 17. We see where. And we're going to see here, guided by the great shepherd. So, we learn that this great multitude, the church triumphant, are those who come out of the great tribulation. The church triumphant is born out of the church militant. It's a constant theme we see in scripture, right? The road to glory goes through suffering. 
right? They suffer in this world and then they're rewarded in glory before the Lord. But where is this great multitude going? What is their ultimate destination? And that is to be in the presence of God for all eternity. Look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So because they have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb, they are now allowed to serve God day and night. And this idea of serving God here calls to mind that we are made a holy priesthood, right? We are a kingdom of priests, a holy priesthood. That's what Peter says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter uses that phrase, we are living stones. We are stones in the temple. And then he says, now you're also a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, it's only the priests could serve in the temple, right? And the word here for temple is the Greek word naos, which indicates they had two, two words. This word, naos, indicates sort of like the holy place and the most holy place, not the greater court, but the, the, you know, the inner sanctuary and the, and the holy place. This is where God dwells. That's where we'll be. We will be where, where God dwells. He is there and we are there with us. And it says he will shelter us with his presence. And again, literally, that, that word there, shelter, tabernacle, skenao. He will spread his presence over us like a tent. I think that's a very beautiful picture of how God sort of just covers us and spreads his wings over us as an as a, as a eagle does to her chicks, right? This is what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 4. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of flaming fire by night for, all, for over all the glory, there will be a canopy. Again, that idea of the Lord sheltering the people of Zion. And again, it looks forward to what we see later in Revelation, in Revelation 21.3. And behold, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then in verse 16, we see John alluding to other passages of the Old Testament, too, where in verse 16, John says, they shall, no, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. So not only will the, the church triumphant enjoy the presence of God for all eternity, but they will also enjoy the blessing that comes from being in the shelter of God. In this passage here that prophesies the restoration of Israel in Isaiah 49.10 foresees a time when they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them by springs of water and guide them. Again, this sounds familiar, right? That's Isaiah 49.10. Sounds an awful like like Revelation 7.16. Hunger, thirst. Scorching heat. These are all reminders of this age, right? Reminders of all the troubles we face in life under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Life under the sun. Life in this world. We will face hunger. We will face uh, thirst. We will face scorching heat. But here the church triumphant never has to worry about these things ever again. The reason there will be no hunger, no thirst, no scorching heat is because of the lamb. Look what the lamb does in verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That language sounds very reminiscent to Psalm 23, right? 
He guides you into the, you know, into the verdant pastures. He leads you to the streams of water. Here, Jesus, the great shepherd, will lead us to plentiful pastures so there will be no hunger. He will lead us to flowing water so there will be no thirst. He will lead us to shady groves so we will not have to feel the heat of the scorching sun. And this living water that Jesus guides us to is what Jesus promised that Samaritan woman back in John 4. Rivers of living water gushing up into you for eternal life. And finally, notice this precious promise about God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, this is a promise we see in Isaiah 25.8, Revelation 21.4. But this is so tender. Think about this, right? God, the eternal one, the ancient of days, the great creator, stoops down, wipes every tear from the eyes of everybody. He makes all of that go away. These tears represent all of our troubles, everything we've gone through in this veil of tears. God makes all of that go away. It's tempting at times to wonder if what we're going through in this life is worth it, right? So many things going on in this world, so many troubles we've all gone through. How many people here have gone through troubles? Every hand should go up, right? You've gone through some troubles. You've had something happen in your life at some point in your life that brought a tear to your eye. God says he will wipe away all those tears. Is it worth it to go through what we're going through in this life? Yes, an unequivocal yes, because God is there on the other side to take away all of our pain, all of our sorrow, and all of our troubles. Next time, uh, Lord willing, on the 20th, we'll look at Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5, the seventh seal, and a little bit of extra stuff there going on.